0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Nubank's $750 million mega round, Klarna takes on credit card fees with its new in-app shopping product, and Marketa's IPO triples its valuation. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors.
1: After Dark is back, and this time we're looking at the New World Order during a virtual live podcast recording on Wednesday, the 16th of June. Join your favourite FinTech insider hosts and special guests to discuss how fintechs are accelerating innovation and helping to shape a new world order in financial services. Save your spot today via bit.ly forward slash NWO. And make sure you stick around after the show, the networking and expert-hosted roundtables. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest-performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com.
0: Welcome to episode 536 of Fintech Insider. My name is Ross Gallagher, and I am joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Sarah Kuczynski. How are you doing, Sarah?
1: I am well, thank you, Ross. It seems an age since I've spoken to you. I only seem to speak to you via this medium these days. How are you doing? I know.
0: I'm great, <laughs> thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I'm really glad to be here with you. And of course, as always, we are not alone and we are joined by some awesome guests. So making a welcome return, we have Natasha Jones, investor at Octopus Ventures. Uh, welcome to the show, Natasha. How are you doing?
2: Yeah, great. Thanks for having me.
0: Excellent. A pleasure. I know it's a huge week uh, for investments, so I'm sure you'll be busy over the next hour or so. Um, as will uh, Ruth Fox, Blader partner at Anthemis. Uh, welcome to the show, Ruth. How are you doing?
3: Doing great. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Awesome to have you. And finally, making his FinTech Insider debut, we have AJ Coyne, who is the UK marketing lead at Kleiner. Welcome to the show, AJ. Good to have you. Thank you for having me, Ross. Delighted to, to join you guys. Excellent. No, the pleasure was ours. Uh, big week for you guys as well, um, which we will get into shortly. So, uh, with that in mind, let's jump straight into this week's news. Our first story this week comes from TechCrunch and is all about Newbank's mega raise $750 million. Uh, extension they announced to its Series G, bringing the round to a total of $1.15 billion and their valuation to $30 billion. So since January, the company went from having 34 million customers to now having 40 million and grew its value by a further $5 billion. The extension funding was led by Berkshire Hathaway, which put in $500 million and a number of other investors. Newbank serves many unbanked or underserved citizens in Brazil, which makes up about 30% of the population. And while Brazil remains Newbank's primary market, the company also offers services in Colombia and Mexico. Its offering now includes a digital bank account, a debit card, insurance, P2P payment via PIX, loans, rewards, life insurance, and an account and credit card for small business owners. So, um, Ruth, let's come to you first on this one. Um, As an investor, what were your initial thoughts?
3: I mean, it's a huge and hugely impressive round. And as an extension, it's a huge and impressive extension, probably reflective of a couple of things. One, that there's just an absolutely enormous amount of capital in the markets generally, and certainly chasing private companies. And so we are seeing more and more of these mega rounds. But I think you know, if you if you try to kind of correct for the enormous amount of capital, what you really see is, in my view, a couple of things. Number one, the kind of internet revolution in finance has always been about democratization. It's been about using technology to uh, less expensively distribute products to more people. And so when you overlay that on the emerging market context, you see just an enormous amount of potential value to create. I think there is a little bit of a saturation uh generally of of these types of products in developed markets and so investors are naturally turning towards developing markets to find opportunities and to capitalize on those opportunities.
0: Yeah, Natasha, that's a really interesting point. Um this feels like kind of the norm now, right? These these massive value raises in these uh Emerging markets. Is this just a great time to be, uh, to be raising in these markets?
2: Yeah. I mean, like Ruth is an early stage investor in many of our companies. Look at one billion dollars with envy. And now we're seeing one million dollar round. So it's, it's absolutely incredible. But I think it speaks a lot to the growth stories and the ingredients of success that New Bank has created. And the first is, you know, the founder stories that he walked into a bank, couldn't open a bank account within less than four days, had to go back physically and open a bank account. And now with New Bank customers can do that within 20 minutes receive credit card approval within 24 hours. But importantly, New Bank has created a very large proprietary data pool. So they give $10 as a credit line to every customer. And that enables them to build that credit score up. I think in a Western context, we kind of take for granted the fact that there are credit bureaus that banks can lean on and extend credit to. In that developing context, that simply just doesn't exist. And New bank through being able to analyze that first credit repayment, it also analyzes and creates a community around its users, so who their customers transact to, um, for example, how quickly um, they repay loans, how quickly their friends repay loans. They sit on a lot of very valuable data, and I think that's given them a very strong position to, as you said um, and mentioned in your introduction, lots and lots of different financial products and create a very strong platform through which it can grow through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And AJ, interested to get your thoughts on what Natasha said about those sort of diverse and those alternative credit scoring models, because I know that um, this is this is something that you uh, you guys are playing in as well. Yeah, I mean it
4: certainly is, and I think the um, I guess the interesting challenge, and we operate in in developed markets predominantly, right, at, at Klarna, but there's a real I guess lack of understanding for. You know, what is in our opinion a very innovative way of, of doing credit checks so um, traditional you know providers are doing it a one-off check up front making a very sort of big decision or a, or a big giveaway in terms of that credit loan amount whereas in real time you know we're doing soft credit checks on on that um, amount with each transaction and actually even that innovation is sort of you know uh, slightly mind-blowing for some of the bureaus to understand in this market to actually help them understand you know we're operating in a very innovative way way in which we're underwriting. And actually, the the developed world has got a lot to learn from both fintech innovation and also the emerging markets to actually improve their services too.
0: Yeah. And then, Sarah, I guess with that in mind, is it probably fair to say that Nubank could be considered one of the sort of case studies for fintech success, I guess?
1: Well, I mean, I would agree because I wrote a blog post on this in February. So I just like to, have, you know, be proven right. Um, I think it's because I've said for a long time that when people are looking at digital banks and challenger banks and banks and whatever, you, whatever you're going to call them, I know in the US we'd be very careful what we call them now, um, that uh, people are looking at the wrong case studies. So if you look at Monzo and Starling, they've done great things, but they're operating in an entirely different environment. And, and what they've done is they've done well. But to to the point that have already been made, they're not necessarily doing anything revolutionary you look at new bank it's delivering products and services in ways that have not been done before to people who literally have no other products and services i think there's very few monzo customers who didn't have a bank account until they came to monzo very few Starling customers who didn't have, you know, you know, a, a banking account before they came to Starling. That may be true on the business side, the small business side. I would say is different. But I would say what New Bank's done is is very very different. Um, it's a different market, it's a different audience. It's done it very very successfully. I think I'm going to be interested to see what it does next. I kind of put this out on, on Twitter. That's like, that's a lot of money. Well, what's it going to do with it? And, and obviously consolidating its position across Latin America would be, you know, one thing. But somebody pointed out, and I can't claim credit for this idea, but I think it's a fascinating one, um, is that. They may look at the US because there's a huge market of Latinx consumers in the US who are being very badly served by all of the the financial service providers there. And there are US fintechs trying to serve those communities. But I wonder with Newbank, with the, the, you know, the, the audience it's got, the customers it's got, those customers who you know, um, love, love the product and are willing to recommend it, whether that would be an interesting step for it to take. Um, the US is a very different market, very different regulation, but it was just an interesting idea. And, and I think, you know, I, I could, I could see them doing it. It didn't, it didn't seem like a mad idea, put it that way.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. So I think, um, when Vales said, you know, we're tiny, I think he meant we want blood. <laughs> and I think that's very much with an international perspective. Um, and the way I see it, you know, I think it's all about, finding those markets with those perfect ingredients to create a really big challenger player. And that's, you know, concentration of banks, a high portion of underserved or unbanked completely customers, and a high mobile phone penetration, which creates a perfect distribution for these challenger players. So I can completely see how new bank have gone from Brazil, which has the highest kind of digital banking adoption, uh, third digital banking adoption to Mexico, which is second on the list. But it's also going to go to, I think, many other markets, including you know, places like Africa, even Asia. You're looking at CUDA, which has a very high valuation as well for similar reasons because it's tapped into that market with those three perfect elements to really create a disruptive player.
0: Yeah, and then I guess building on, um, Sarah, your point, what you said about you know there are external providers that are looking at these markets. I mean, 30% unbanked or underserved and looking to get in there. But I do wonder... You know, what sort of a leg up does New Bank have in particular with their sort of local context, their understanding of the market, the products that they've launched, you know, as Natasha mentioned, that $10 credit line clearly show that they understand their customers' needs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's hugely important. I think um, what often happens when particularly banks trying to, to cross, um, digital banks banks, like fintech in general, try to cross borders is they fail to understand nuances of individual markets. And, and new banks, you know, it's started by people who live there, who have lived experience of that market. They are the best people to, to, start, to start that company there and to deliver the products they, they know are needed. So I, it would be interesting to see whether that does translate, I think, outside of, you know, those markets, it, it knows well. Um, I think it is interesting as well, I was saying this to somebody the other day, when you have these, um, newbank isn't one of these, but you are starting to see a proliferation, particularly in the US, of banks trying to target specific communities of which Latinx people is one, but also um, LBG. TQ plus communities, um, you know, teenagers, uh, people of color, you know, generally that you really have to be very careful if you're going after that market, you really have to know what you're doing. And the best way to know what you're doing is to be part of that community. Um, so, you know, it, it, they have the advantage there. they also have a huge leg up and they've been there a while. Um, and, and everybody seems to love them. <laughs> they don't seem to, I think they only just hired a CMO because everybody loves them so much. They've acquired 40 million customers. Actually, I don't know if it's 40 million customers or 40 million accounts, but, you know, through word of mouth. And even if that has 40 million accounts, that could still be 20 million people with two products with them. And that's an endorsement in and of itself if people have got the credit product and then gone to get the, the debit product as well, for example.
3: Yeah, I think while I agree that. There is something about launching in your home market and deeply knowing and understanding the market. I, I agree with your previous comment, Sarah, around the potential opportunity in the U.S. I think we're going to see more and more emerging markets players entering the U.S. because um, sadly, I think that from an infrastructure perspective, um, from a kind of wealth gap and poverty perspective, in some ways, uh, certain communities in the U.S. do also resemble the emerging markets. And, I, you know, I, I also think about um, the uh, immigrant and migrant communities that are pretty prominent in the United States and sort of that, that venue into the U.S. Uh, through Latin America. So it will be really interesting to watch.
1: Yeah to build on your point I'm sure there are plenty of people in the US who know people in Brazil and Mexico have friends and family in in Brazil and Mexico who would recommend this product to them like talking about communities that there are huge community ties across those borders
4: Completely we're seeing um I guess similar traction ourselves in the US for for that reason and for A combination of, I guess, that discrepancy between the class system in terms of that education and financial literacy that just doesn't exist in some communities, and that that therefore means their availability to some products, again, does not exist, or their knowledge of the risks associated with them doesn't exist, and there's a real both opportunity and responsibility as you enter a market like that and into a new community like that to both uh, provide them with the services that, so far, they have been unavailable to get, but also educate them on the, the consequence as well in and around the decisions that they're making. Um, too, but I totally get you on the um, the expat thing too. I think expats always go home uh, and and talk to each other, so there will be a massive word of mouth um, opportunity in the US.
0: It's nice because that uh, that point, AJ, about expanding client services takes us quite nicely actually onto our next story. So our next story comes from Finextra. Uh, Klarna takes on credit cards with in-app installment shopping at all UK online retailers. So Klarna has released a shopping app that enables UK users to pay in three monthly installments for purchases at any online retailer, regardless of whether they're partnered with Klarna or not. The new in-app shopping feature also includes monthly budgets and personal spending limits that can be set and controlled by users. It is already live in other markets such as the US, Australia and Sweden. Additional capabilities include personalised wish lists and curated content based on consumers' interests and their favourite stores, price drop notifications and price comparison charts. Sebastian Semitkowski, CEO of Kleiner, said, At Kleiner, we believe that no one should ever have to pay credit card fees or high interest. Our one-stop shop app creates a truly personalized and bespoke service and liberates consumers from ever paying more than the price of the product. So, AJ, as I said, naturally, we should come to you first on this. Um, I'd love to hear what more you can tell us on uh the product itself and then maybe picking up on uh, sebastian's point about the the high interest in fees as well with other products
4: yeah of course um so the the product as you said literally just launched um and is live in, in our app and in short it allows us to i guess democratize Klarna and, and bring Klana services to any website um on the internet so you will log into your Klarna app um typically um you would go there to pay your invoice or, or now you can go there for shopping inspiration. If you click on our browser tab, um, you can pick a website that might not have um, Klarna currently installed at checkout. Um, but you can now go onto that website, um, pick the product you want to buy. Um, and, uh, and then when you get to, the point of purchase you can click on the k in the bottom right create what we call a one-time card um, and it works like our pay in three products meaning that you um kind of pays that retailer up front but you pay kind the first third immediately and then the second third in a month's time and the third third um in two months time but meaning that i guess we can allow anyone to shop with Klana on any uh website in the world in addition to that, there are some other features that you mentioned, so such as you know helping solve other problems that exist in the shopper journey. So the ability to create a wish list from any website in the world and any product versus having to be reliant on that retailer's website to create it. And, and I think once you've saved those products as well, um, it will automatically tell you if there's a price drop um, uh, on that product. So if you're doing it in your kitchen and you've got a fridge in mind, for example, it will let you know that that's just dropped 20% on any website uh, in the internet. On to um, the other point that you made in and around, um, I guess, uh, interest. So, I mean, Sebastian is right. We firmly believe that there is a fundamental misalignment um, with with the traditional credit card system. Um, I think we did some data, uh, some reporting earlier this last month um, in and around the fact that in the UK alone last year, consumers paid £5.7 billion on interest and fees with traditional credit and by Now Pay later helped to contribute to £76 million in savings. That's Klarna plus the other providers. So um, I think this product was always on the roadmap, but we've accelerated the launch because we want to see a world where consumers aren't reliant on high-revolving APR um, and having to uh, you know, spend an amount and think they're going to pay it back within a month, but then sometimes you buy something else, or your credit gets increased, and 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 you you pay the interest. Whereas, we believe everyone should have access to an interest-free, fee-free, whether it's Klarna or somebody else product. That means that, um, yeah, that you only ever pay the price of the product. It's as simple as that, and and never anything more.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that um, as a pro is a very compelling argument. I guess just to present the. The flip side how do you guys um sort of respond to i suppose some of the the criticisms that has been i suppose thick and fast um from many sources i guess i'm thinking in particular with citizens advice kind of suggesting that actually the con of not having the interest there is that people don't really understand that they are getting into debt and that that can potentially be a bit of a slippery slope
4: yeah it's a it's a very 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 good point um i think it's it's also hard to really understand, and, that, and I guess we've worked, there's probably two things. Um, all of the relevant disclosures that you would need when entering into a credit agreement are part of our checkout flows on, whether that be within the in-app shopping or any of our merchants, including the relevant risk associated of, of non-payment. And then I guess the language associated with our products, again, there is probably a, an, an element of you would expect people to understand that this is not a typical, you know, if you're getting something, someone has to pay. It's not a free product that you keep. But equally on that point, we've been working with, um, because I actually found something out recently, which which I blew my mind and maybe it will blow your minds too. We'll test it out. The average reading age in the UK is eight years old for all adults and all people. So that means, so we have spent a lot of time working with a company called Ferra Finance to update all of our messaging, all of our T's and C's, all of our explainers around our products to be sure that at any, I guess, age of, you know, people that are using Clarnet, they fully understand um, in, in, I guess, as an eight-year-old reading capability would, um, the, the information around
0: it. Really interesting. Sarah, I see you nodding furiously, so keen to bring you in.
1: No, I I was just nodding to to AJ's point that I I know about that, that reading age point because of some of the work I've done in the insurance space. There's a company called Bought By Many. Um, which is a really interesting insurtech that specialises in pet insurance, and they um, rewrote all their policy documents and then got—I um, think it was—I can't remember who it was—I think it was the CTO's seven-year-old son to read them and explain it back, and that was that was how they went about doing their policy documents. Because exactly to AJ's point, that you can have all the terms and conditions in the world, and you can have people clicking along to them, and even if they've read them, you know, what's the likelihood of them of them understanding it? So um, I think that's I think that's a really interesting point, and I think I also know um, that Klarna brought out a um, a report recently which was um, looking into uh, the influence of influencers (laughs) on younger people in the market um, and talking about and there was some statistic was terrifying to me but it was something like 56% of younger people have bought something on the advice and I'm saying in inverted commas of a celebrity or influencer Um, but, but very I think it was most of them don't know that that person has been paid to say that. And so I think that's another, you know, I, I, know that Klan is acting on it. They have this, I can't remember what it's called. Age will have to forgive me. There's something council, isn't it? Um, talking about, you know, that's, that's another problem that we have up there. If we have people who don't understand what they're getting into and then also who are people who are taking advice from non-traditional sources, particularly non-traditional sources who, who aren't necessarily qualified to say what they're saying. And even if they are, they're being paid to say it. And, and, you know, even that should, that should be a flag in my mind to most people.
2: Yeah. And that really resonates with me because. Well, bought by many is a portfolio company of ours. And I think, especially in the fintech space, we talk a lot about, you know, financial inclusion and democratizing access to financial products. And on the back end, that's not often paired with financial education. Um, and that's why companies such as Robinhood, for me, just, I'm still not hundred percent comfortable that they've really enabled kind of savvy financial products and kind of financial management of its users. So, um, yeah, I definitely think that sort of approach is, where it needs to go,
0: Ruth. What were your uh, your thoughts when you read this one?
3: I mean, I am happy to say I think that Klarna is an incredibly exciting company, and it I find it a little bit, I guess, unsurprising that there's going to be a lot of innovation in the space. The space is very hot. Um, I think the thing that I find interesting is that you know, at Anthemis, we have talked for a long time about this thesis and that we have around embedded finance. So you're Putting um, sort of financial transactions and experiences into in, in situ into other experiences where where kind of relevant things are happening. So you go, you want to buy something, you feel compelled to buy something, and you have the opportunity to uh, to pay for it in installments, and that's very situated within the checkout process. And I think here we're kind of flipping that on its head, which is also natural and sort of part of this this evolutionary journey that we're on with new technologies. Really saying, okay, well, you can do it that you can kind of have this experience in situ at checkout um, or you can become uh, an even more, you can embed this uh, this app or you can kind of disembed it from the checkout experience and embed it in your kind of shopping life. And it's almost counterintuitive for those of us who have been sort of seeking these um, extremely, you know, sort of via API embedded financial experiences. But I think that once you have this incredibly powerful brand, which is really recognizable, you have the ability to then um, create a world where you showcase other products, other possibilities. You talked about sort of ancillary benefits of creating shopping lists or finding out about sales. Um, so it's an interesting experiment and I'll be really keen to see how it works.
0: And, and controls, right, AJ? Like uh, monthly budgets and personal spending limits, I guess that's quite a, an important part of the proposition. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really
4: important to that financial education point that um, we have a job to do to educate all of our users um, on the right way to use their product and how to sort of set spending limits. So that uh, budgeting tool is now live in the app and, and it allows you to sort of say how much you want to be spending with Kana on a monthly basis. It will remind you when you're sort of getting close to that limit and, and sort of recommending not to sort of buy anything further. On the um, the other point in and around um I guess flipping it it's so funny you say that because when we were, when we pushed it live we were getting phone calls from merchants and retailers in the uk being like have we, we haven't have you turned on on our website and we're like no we're just driving a whole heap of new customers for you via this new product because they're super excited to to, to use client with you so it's super strange in terms of that experience too
1: so the big question is aj what are you going to do with the money talking of raises.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Literally, spoiler alert came out as we were as we were recording. Um, Sebastian actually has been in town this week um, in in London. He's been five days in quarantine and three days with us on on the team. So we had a, a, a long discussion about it. But um, maybe we'll globalise the influencer council versus just having it in the UK. I don't know if it will cost as much as the uh, the amount SoftBank has given us though.
1: Sounds like a good idea to me. That
0: raise was. 639 million at a 45.6 billion valuation led ages I think you said yes. by SoftBank's vision fund too and actually represent a roughly about 50% rise I think in post-money valuation from your previous raise in March with which I think just served to underscore Ruth's earlier point that I mean you guys are going from strength to strength at the moment
4: yeah and the um i don't know if you saw in march and um we launched something called give one uh, essentially it's our planet fund back so as part of that raise in march that led to a 10 million dollar donation the same mentality will apply to, to this fund so that will be topped up with a an additional one percent from from that amount as well
0: all right well from there i am just going to take us through to a quick pause while you hear from our sponsors so we'll be back shortly <music>
1: With a global consumer panel of 15 million registered members, over 11 years of historic single source data, and proprietary technology that connects data and simplifies the research process, YouGov is home to the largest collection of constant, entirely permissioned consumer opinion and rich behavioral intelligence in the world. To learn more, visit business.ugov.com. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Visa's fintech fast-track program is a quick and easy way to connect to the Visa network and issue payment credentials. Whether you're an up-and-coming neobank, modernizing B2B payments, or launching a new crypto solution, amazing things can happen when your innovation is combined with the power of one of the world's largest payment networks. Learn more about the possibilities at partner.visa.com. Welcome
0: back to the show. Our next story comes from Reuters and is about Marketa pricing their IPO above range, valuing the startup at $15 billion. Uh, so Marketa priced its initial public offering that launched yesterday well above the target range to raise $1.2 billion, the company said in a statement. Marketa priced its shares at $27 a piece, exceeding the top of its marketed price range, which had been set at $24. Marketa is currently valued at $15.23 billion based on its IPO price, more than tripling its last valuation from May last year when it valued at $4.3 billion following a $150 million raise. Jason Gardner, Marketa chief executive, owned a stake in the company worth a comfortable, a cool $1.9 billion at the IPO price. Ruth, I'm going to come to you first on this. So does it surprise you that Marketa made even more than they thought they would?
3: Nothing surprises me in the u s equities markets at all whatsoever these days. I think you know there's a couple of things tremendous amount of enthusiasm for you know a payments company that's in a lot of ways powering you know big parts of the information economy so I think it's a it's it's a definite bet on what is new. I think that generally we're just seeing this amazing i p o market and you know there's just there's, I think that there are broader, you know, cyclical trends which are, and macro trends which are influencing a lot of the activity in the equities market. There's just been a lot of QE, a lot of capital, um, and and quite a lot of savings searching for a home. And and actually, the U.S. equities market is a pretty small home for for all that excess savings. So in some ways, I think we're seeing. Again, it's the convergence of two trends. One, there being a lot of capital and capital getting really excited about opportunities that feel new and and feel fresh and feel right for the moment. And certainly uh, Marketa does.
0: Yeah, the capital point is a really interesting one because I think, you know, you don't have to look too hard online to find quite a bit of criticism um, about this particular IPO. I think, you know, there's a lot of, suggestion that they depend too heavily on Square as a sort of, uh, I think 70% of their revenue came from Square in 2020, which is crazy. Natasha, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this one?
2: Yeah, for me, it really feels like an an option for kind of future success. So if you look at the market share that Marketa has, it's actually still really small. So it's only 1% of transactions are processed through Marketa at the moment. Um, and it really feels like much to what Ruth is saying, equity investors aren't just searching for a home. I think they're searching for a growth story. And Marketa definitely has that. You know, it's seen a massive growth over the last two years. That's carried on in the first half of this year. I think I saw it was like 120% increase in the fact. So it's just just incredible growth story. As you said, there's a number of criticisms that can be made, um, both on terms of dependency risk, as well as the fact that the return on um, investment in terms of equity is still negative for that business. And the take rate's just going down, and there's a lot of downward pressure on take rate across the whole industry. Um, but yeah, I I think investors are excited to see where this could go, especially everything to do with infrastructure. Um, very understated, but very crucial part of the fintech ecosystem. So yeah, it's definitely, um, just great to see another fintech IPO in any case.
0: Yeah. So I think big room to grow, um, you know, market share, customers, et cetera. But I guess facing competition from, some 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 pretty staunch competition from like the biggest payment processors in the world right like PayPal and Adyen and Stripe etc what did you think of this one Sarah?
1: Yeah I mean I I, I agree with everything that's been said I think it's um I, I can't even begin to work out valuations of anything anymore and it's not my job but I, <laughs> I still see things coming in and I'm going well I can't work that out I'm sure it made sense to somebody somewhere um you know and and, and kind of you know what what what's happening in those markets um i think you know to just to reiterate the point that this is an area, this sort of um, banking as a service, payment as a service, uh, you know, area is, is is it's huge, huge growth potential, but it is a very, very busy market. There are a lot of different people out there doing lots of different elements of it, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see um, who succeeds. Particularly when you look at the sort of clients that that these companies have. So, not to pick on Marquetta specifically, they, a lot of them that play in this similar space, their end clients are quite small fintechs. Um, challenger banks or investment products or square aside, um, a lot of their other, their other, the other customers are, are quite small. And I think it's interesting to see what those companies do as they grow, whether they, they decide to continue using, um, an external, you know, processor issuer like Marquetta, whether they decide to take some of those things in house, which is what we've seen in, in Europe. We've seen a certain number of particularly the, the digital only banks. decide to to pull away from using third parties for a lot of those services um certainly on the issuing side the processing side i think is a bit different i think nearly everybody uses an external processor um but i think it's going to be interesting to see what happens to their market so as they grow their customers will grow and and do they do they grow with those customers or do those customers move on and they go and look for the next wave of of, of people they can help um i don't know the answer and i don't think there's any right or wrong answer there for what Sorry, I can't think of a right or wrong answer. I'm sure Ruth or Natasha or AJ might have a different opinion. But I think that's going to be interesting to see what happens next. So yes, right now, that is a hugely heated space. There's lots of people in it. They're doing really well. But what's going to happen next? Where do they go next? And I'm sure that Marketo has a plan. And I don't know what it is, um, but it's also not obvious to me what that might be. Because as you said, you know, reliance on Square being 70% of its revenue and then the rest of its revenue being made up by very small companies that may or may not decide to continue using its services as they grow, there must be something else, an extra level. And I haven't got to that yet. If anybody else has, please tell me because I'd be really interested.
3: <laughs> I think what you're saying is funny because, and I'm sure that that Natasha is chuckling too, we're, we scrutinize um, with such excruciating cynicism, early stage companies. And it feels like the public markets are, you know, that there is a, a tremendous amount of scrutiny and, and you know, takedowns and, and all kinds of, um, you can read all day long the criticism, but the share prices just, you know, are really, really bubbly. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of enthusiasm right now in the markets for the global growth that we're experiencing for the exit from COVID. There is an acknowledgement of the trends that COVID has accelerated um, and digitalization trends. I think another large uh, client of Marquetas is DoorDash. You know that there there are certain beneficiaries of um, you know of of this pandemic crisis, which. Um, are, are seeing a, a lot of tailwinds in the valuations of their companies, and so you know, I think we can we can read this as a macro story and kind of chuckle about the micro stuff. And and Sarah, as you said, wait to see what comes next. If there is a next, then you know, then certainly they will they will live to fight another day. And and uh, and if not, it's a crowded space, and the payment space is probably you know the first kind of fintech space ever. There are some. Incumbent players. Um, there are some kind of older fintechs, and and there are these guys. So uh, let's see.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. I think I think they. I think you know, Marqueta in particular has, has a really strong base on which to build. I just I'm annoyed that my crystal ball isn't working.
0: Um, AJ, I guess given uh, given the the drivers that, that Ruth's just mentioned, you know the the move coming out of the pandemic, um, that sort of I guess shift to sort of e et etc. Do you think financial technology companies are just exceptionally well positioned to, to continue to benefit from these huge raises, these huge IPOs?
4: A hundred percent. I do think um, uh, the pandemic has obviously been, I guess, horrific on, on, on many levels for a, for a lot of people and has crippled some industries and, and really benefited other, others. And it's sort of this um, fortune for some and, and horrendous uh, situation for others. I think um, the the reality that we've seen certainly is that digital road, digital roadmaps for a lot of businesses that, you know, take seven years plus have actually had to been turned around in, you know, weeks and months. Um, and so the, the organizations and the fintechs that have, you know, removed that friction provide solutions that allow you to integrate very, very quickly, um, uh, have benefited and will continue to benefit. I think the, the other sort of data point I've seen from, from, from our end is, you know, is a lot of, um, not one-time uses but repeat uses because of how long the pandemic has happened typically you'd expect it to take sort of seven times before you convert to a new way of of buying paying shopping behaviors but they've overnight has been sort of become a new norm and, and as a result that i think there'll be continued long tail of that success that we'll see in further valuations and, and further
0: further success stories and sarah final word to you on this one um Maybe a slightly cynical view, but how much do you think this is being driven by the, the higher interchange fees in the U.S.?
1: Me? Cynical? I don't know where you might ever have got that idea, Ross. <laughs> um, I think that the higher interchange fees in the U.S. Have, have really benefited a lot of different types of fintech. I think, you know, it, it's not just Marketo. I think there are certain sort of challenger banks as well that have done really well off the back of it. Um, I think what's going to be interesting is how long that will continue because my understanding is, and, and I'm I may be wrong on this, but the reason it works for them is because their bank licensing partners, the, the people who actually hold the 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 um oh goodness, what's it called, a charter in the US to actually be a bank, benefit by being a certain size. Um uh, you know, they they can they can charge higher fees basically by being by being smaller. Now how long is that going to carry on? Because it feels like in the US there might be a slight amount of sort of regulatory grey area, which at some point somebody's going to look at and go, maybe we should tackle that. And it may be that these smaller banks, a lot of these these um, fintechs, are, are relying on to to, to to you know help them help them with their business models. Essentially, um, it, may, it may be that that no longer works in the future. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know what the current administration is is thinking regarding uh, financial regulation. I have to say I haven't been that close to it so it maybe that, that, that somebody else knows more than I do um, I think it served them very well I think it served a lot of people very well so I don't think if anything were to change there it's just gonna be marketed that's affected I think there's going to be sort of a, have to be a wholesale change across the u.s fintech market and in how their business models work but the hope would be that because these are innovative companies that can think on their feet they possibly will have that you know in mind and have thought about how else they can how they can supplement it how they can innovate their business models how they can do things differently to make make sure that they still serve their customers while, you know, whilst they're taking a hit if those interchange fees are cut. I mean, there's also the point if we go back to, to Ruth's point about how much money they've raised and how much money they've got in the bank, that probably buys them a bit of time to start thinking about, you know, what they might do if such circumstances were to arise. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely one to keep an eye on.
0: Okay, I'm going to move us on to our next story, which comes from Finextra and concerns the Bank of England laying down its regulatory expectations for stablecoins. So the Bank of England says that stablecoins used as money would be expected to face the same regulatory standards as those attached to bank deposits. The bank defines a stablecoin as digital tokens issued by the private sector, which aim to maintain a stable value at all times, primarily in relation to existing national currencies. For all stablecoins deemed as systemic, the bank's expectation is for them to be stable in value at all times and offer a one-to-one redemption with a robust legal claim. Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, says that the prospect of stablecoins as a means of payment and the emerging propositions of CBDC, so central bank-backed digital currencies, have generated a host of issues that central banks, governments, and society as a whole need to carefully consider and address. To meet expectations, a core set of features of the current banking regime need to be reflected in any regulatory model for stablecoins, says Bailey, including capital requirements, liquidity requirements, support from a central bank, and a backstop to compensate depositors in event of failure. States the bank, regulation lays the groundwork for innovation and needs to be clearly established before a systemic stablecoin could safely operate in the UK. To get more analysis on this, we spoke to Rian Lewis, blockchain consultant and author of The Cryptocurrency Revolution. So let's hear from Rian now.
5: So I think there are two things to bear in mind. The fact that this is very much a discussion paper, so nothing specified in detail yet. But the other thing is that they do see opportunities here, not just threats. One thing to be clear about is the scope. They've defined the type of stablecoins they're talking about as those that are denominated in sterling and which have a retail focus. So let's be clear, they're not talking about Bitcoin or decentralised algorithmically anchored stablecoins like DAI. Um, In fact, they explicitly express a worry that if new forms of privately issued money denominated in another currency were to become widely used, that could impact the efficacy of their own stability tools. But on a very positive note, they see possibilities here for financial inclusion, for real-time settlement, cost savings, the programmable qualities of these forms of digital money. But they've got worries too, and the main ones are around consumer confidence in sterling, so making sure that these new forms of money are adequately backed and insured and also whether new non-bank stablecoin issuers whether they're able or not to provide credit at the same level as banks. Um, So lots of questions to be answered, including the question of how the bank obviously progresses towards its own um, CBDC. But I think their statement that they do not see their mission as preserving the status quo, and they go out of their way to state that, shows that they believe these innovations will happen. They just need to be handled in the right way.
0: And just to layer on to that, so YouGov surveyed their panelists for us before the show to get some sentiment data on how people feel about cryptocurrencies. Older men are the most likely to agree that cryptocurrencies are not to be trusted. 69% of men aged 55 plus uh, agree with that statement. Uh, Women are more likely to neither agree nor disagree to this statement. Uh, Make of that what you will. Um, a similar trend is true, however, for those thinking crypto is the future of online payments. Uh, 35% of men aged 18 to 24 agreed, uh, 69% of 55 plus again did not, uh, and 40% of women across all ages and categories neither agree nor disagree. Uh, who wants to come in on this one? Because I think we've, uh, we've heard a lot of really interesting stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, gender um, gender biases aside, I don't know what that says about gender splits and trust in new technology. Um, but I think what's important about that statistic, actually, is that many of these big institutions are actually run by the age group that is most skeptical about cryptocurrencies. And I think that shows why it's really important for the Bank of England to start laying down regulation. So, as a team um, at Octopus, we spend a lot of time talking to institutions about their access, their involvement in cryptocurrencies and regulation, clear framework by which they can advise their clients on the adoption or not of cryptocurrencies is really key. So I think this is like a really welcome step, particularly for the adoption of stable coins, which you know has great value outside of just a speculative um, asset that lots of people think, you know, the traditional bitcoins and ethereums are, you know, allows users to quickly and cheaply transfer value across the world. Um, and I think could be really instrumental in changing how banks and users kind of interchange money. So um, for me, I think this like is a really um, great fast step forward. But um, as was said, is only really a discussion paper yet again. Um, so I think some more kind of firm steps would also be quite welcome.
3: I, I mean, I think what's funny too is that if you talk to people in the crypto community, they just believe in crypto. So there's I think that when people think about stable coins and the sort of utility value that Natasha was just talking about around stable coins, you know, and, and particularly for people outside of the world of crypto who might be non believers, the crypto people will be like, oh, well, that's a great way to de-risk a position without leaving crypto you know, like they're going to be pro-stablecoin too. They're not, you know, they they like everything crypto. So, you know, crypto positive people will point to great yield <laughs> coming off stable coins. Um, but I think that sometimes, you know, the interesting thing about the UGov statistics is that you have these sort of classifications of people who are crypto skeptics and who aren't, or, you know, how skeptical, but it's such a strong community that has, you know, such a... Subculture, I guess it's really interesting to ask people who are pro crypto why these crypto assets are valuable, and to get their perspective because um, it's interesting.
0: And and to build on that, AJ, I mean, um, do you think that the sort of stable coins, fully backed stable coins, right, uh, in contrast to sort of non-backed crypto, where they've sort of controlled for the volatility, do you think that actually take stable coins beyond those sort of crypto bubbles and actually there's some sort of everyday use cases in there around actually it being used as an everyday currency etc etc
4: to a certain extent um yes for a wider user base versus to, I think, to Ruth's point, there is going to be a core group of people that are always going to be pro-crypto and using crypto. I think what this does allow is does allow a, a wider, I guess, experience and trust value associated with crypto that hasn't really, has been probably a question mark for for a lot of people before that 65% um, older audience you mentioned for, for the males or that 40% indifferent. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is I guess the signals that we're finally getting from Bank of England government in and around, I guess, the topic of regulation, which is one that's true, I guess, very close to my heart at the moment. But the fact that... the fintech and and providing a an environment for fintech to grow in the uk is super important um and finally seeing the i guess the benefits of of the potential of um you know appropriate proportionate regulation that actually protects consumers but also allows you know the fintech environment to flourish is, is super important and i think that signal is is great to to hear
0: and and sarah so obviously this is still just a discussion paper but i think you know central banks covering something like 80% of the, the world's population are looking at CBDCs to pick up on the Bank of England point. Um, yes, very few have moved beyond sort of research or pilot, but it feels like this is a trend that isn't going away.
1: Oh, I think it's definitely a trend that isn't going away. Um, I think to go back to the YouGov stats, because I think that's the thing I probably understand most about this story. I certainly don't know an awful lot about stable coins, and I think that's the point. Um, so, you know, I hate to, to make... Um, uh, gender-based assumptions, but I'm not sure that the men who agree that they are the future or they don't trust them necessarily have any more information than the women. I think the women are just more likely to go, I really don't understand what you're asking me, so I'm just going to be non-committal and i do feel like that perhaps is reflected in some of the regulators who are like "Well, we've got to look at this but does anybody really understand what's going on and and i think there's there's so much to unpick um but i think it's it, it, it's going to take a while and i'm going to be really interested to see um which of the central banks manage to unpick it which which central banks get the right people in to help them unpick it because i'm not sure to natasha's point that they have the right people in there right now who can help them you know Act on these guidance or, or, make, or make further decisions that are more concrete um, beyond, I think it was El Salvador, which has decided to accept Bitcoin as a national currency now, um, you know, snap decision. Fine. Good for them. But I don't think that I'm going to see the Bank of England or the Fed doing anything similar anytime soon. So I think there's going to be a really interesting... Um, move here we know regulators move more slowly than than fintechs and tech companies generally um i think they're perhaps even further disadvantaged in this particular space because there's so many different uh, elements to it and so much nuance that it's going to be really interesting to see how they navigate it um and how they navigate it in such a way that doesn't accidentally put people completely off it because there were some comments by andrew bailey a few weeks ago which basically sounded like he was saying it's a terrible idea don't do it um that that's not helpful to anybody
0: yeah um, the only thing I'm I'm, I'm going to say is I think there are some really key drivers, um, at least for the CBDC route, you know, some are push like fear of losing control over monetary policy, you know, financial stability. What's the implications there if all of money moves over to private exchanges? But I think there are some key drivers on the financial inclusion side. Also, I just think that um, it's so context specific and it has to be so aligned with your local causes of 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 exclusion that i just think this is gonna it is going to take some time but i think we're going to get there okay um i'm going to move us on to the stories that we didn't have time to cover we're getting to the end of the the show so we're just going to round up those other stories from the week we didn't have time to cover but that still deserve a shout out so sarah why don't you uh why don't you start
1: Sure. So the first story is that Plum has moved into retirement savings. Um, So Plum uses AI to automate elements of personal finance, such as savings, bill switching and investing. The new subscription-free Plum SIP, uh, which is a self-invested personal pension, can be found alongside customers day-to-day spending, saving and other investments in the Plum app, which will give users visibility over all of their finances in one place. Uh, The pension product offers a range of diversified retirement funds, including a green fund that gives greater weight to companies that meet positive carbon and environmental criteria. Uh, Users can also consolidate existing pension pots into the app as you can with any SIP. Um, That provides a 360 degree view of retirement savings, Plum claims. Um, And the move into retirement savings is the first extension of the Plum app into new territory, uh, with apparently stock trading and crypto coming later this year. Um, I think it's obvious move for plum to move into retirement savings i think a sip is an interesting vehicle i don't know their demographics but sips generally suit older or sorry not older more experienced um savers and and investors and, and reti- people closer to retirement age um and i wonder if it's i wonder how the product is going to be um advertise to customers and what sort of uh, you know advice will be given around it, because for a lot of younger people just embarking on their retirement savings journey, a SIP is not necessarily the best product to be using. Um, so I think for Plum it makes sense. Um, I think there's there's nothing wrong with it. You know, uh, as a, as a product addition, I just think the way the route that they've chosen um, may need some careful uh, contextual support uh, for the way in which they advertise it to current customers.
0: Excellent. Okay, our next story comes from Finextra and is all about Hong Kong going all in on fintech. So the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, HKMA, is to establish a new fintech cross-agency coordination group to formulate supportive policies for the local fintech ecosystem. The formation of the group is one of a range of initiatives adopted by the central bank as part of its fintech 2025 strategy plan. All told, the project encompasses local commercial banks, blockchain based data sharing, talent supply, and the central bank's own work in exploring the outer boundaries of digital currency creation. The HKMA intends to roll out a tech baseline assessment to take stock of banks' current and planned adoption of fintech in the coming years to identify fintech business areas or specific technology types which may be underdeveloped and would benefit from HKMA support. So. I don't think there's any real um, surprises. I think the HKMA has always been incredibly progressive in driving a sort of innovation and, and, and sort of fintech agenda. So I think this is, uh, this is more of that sort of progress um, actively driving that. I think one really interesting take out, again, just sort of off the back of our previous story is that um, they are also uh, exploring, as they call it, the outer boundaries of a digital currency creation.
1: Um, And the next one is is sort of along the similar lines, really. It's that Massachusetts has set up a fintech hub. Uh, So Massachusetts is getting its own fintech hub that will seek to capitalise on the Commonwealth's deep talent pool and reputation for innovation. Following more than a year of work by the Massachusetts fintech working group, the Mass Fintech Hub, is launching as a public-private partnership dedicated to making the Commonwealth a global leader in fintech. Operated by Boston-based non-profit fintech sandbox, the hub will look to make the most Of a talent pool that consists of some of the world's best universities, including Harvard and MIT, and a tech heavy economy. It will work to increase access to capital um, and will look to enhance collaboration among the state's largest financial institutions, startups, investors, nonprofits, and academia. Um, I mean, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you if you look at what's in Massachusetts in terms of, you know, talent and, and kind of, uh, you know, the people who are coming out of the, those organizations, those institutions, that they would try and maybe grow some businesses or make it easier for those people to come out and set up a business where they are rather than having to look elsewhere. Um, I have to say, again, I don't know an awful lot about that part of the world. I think I've been to Boston once. Um, but it, I think it's going to be interesting to see what we see in the U.S. Um, about individual states sort of trying to grow fintech at home and how they try and maybe keep some of the talent um, and, you know, it, you know at home, as it were, and also attract some of that capital, which we've talked about, that glorious capital, which is flying around everywhere, how they try and bring, you know, some of that to their, to their individual states. Um, this is, you know, this is a good start. It'll um, be interesting to see what, what other states do um, as a result.
0: Excellent. Okay, and our and finally story this week also comes from Finextra, and concerns rapper ASAP Rocky becoming Klarna CEO for the day. Uh, So the American rapper has become a shareholder of Buy Now, Pay Later firm Klarna and assumed the mantle of CEO for a day. He took over the reins from incumbent CEO Sebastian Semikowski on the 1st of June with a mission to curate exclusive content in the Klarna shopping app, focusing on upcycling and vintage fashion. Additionally, the rapper has joined Kleiner's Give One Sustainability initiative, pledging 1% of his investment to projects focusing on climate and biodiversity. Rocky's choice is the Miti Alliance in Kenya and its founder, Michael Wayaki, who is fighting to slow down the effects of climate change due to deforestation. Sebastian Simakowski, CEO and co-founder of Kleiner, says he challenges the status quo every day we at Kleiner have a lot to learn from him. Besides, after sixteen years since founding Kleiner, I think I deserve a day off. Um, AJ, how did it feel having ASAP Rocky as your boss for a day? I mean
4: I mean it doesn't really get much better than that, right? Um Anyone that's worked with Sebastian knows that he works long hours, so um, uh, it was it was a it was a sweet release for, for a day. But um, I think Sebastian said that it was the first time he managed to do the school run in in a long time. So his kids got a big benefit out of it as well, in terms of uh, them being able to look after him. Um, I actually have to encourage you to watch the video where Michael from Mitty in Kenya finds out that ASAP has donated to him and his charity. It is just wonderful to, to to watch and to see um and i think i mean asap has he's from harlem and has a very big point of view on financial literacy so really really interesting to to hear his points of view on on what's needed within um certainly the american system and, and certain communities there to, to help improve so yeah bring him back um be my message for another day or uh, or a month but maybe we won't say that to sebastian
0: well, it might be Sebastian's message as well. I don't know why I was surprised to hear you say that he actually took the day off. I just assumed that you know, he was still there, but that's great that he got the full benefit of the day off.
4: He got the full got the full day off. He was talking, um, as I said, he was in the UK this week. He was talking about having ice cream with his kids in the garden and really enjoying that that twenty four hours he had without having to work.
0: Well, thoroughly deserved,
1: um, Sarah. What were your thoughts on this one? Oh, um, I thought it was. I thought it was bold but obviously it was only one day so they couldn't go that badly wrong um <laughs> to be fair that's based on the assumption that i think that asap rocky doesn't have experience running a multi uh, multi-billion pound company but i may be wrong he may he may do that on his on his you know uh, side time on his spare time um no i, I think it's i think it's an interesting decision and i think it's um i just want to know who you're getting next aj can we can we vote for who can be the next ceo of Plana? Of is there is there going to be a poll
4: absolutely you tell me you tell me who you think and i'll write them down and make it happen
1: i think i think you need possibly rihanna i think she seems like she would know what she was doing so i think you know if you can get her for for the next takeover i'd be i'd be very pleased love that
0: i love it and i and, and, and i think you know the um obviously the the sort of publicity and the fact that it's uh it's a rapper aside i think you know lots of good things have come out of it so you know you mentioned aj about the the donation to to michael in kenya and the uh the give one sustainability initiative which you uh which you mentioned earlier on in the show so um lots of good as well as just a whole heap of publicity
4: completely and i think um i can't say enough uh, i guess his passion for financial literacy as well and i think hopefully you'll see that start to come through um uh, and the impact of that longer term as well um once we get through um this
0: first wave yeah, and there is a bigger push, um, particularly in the in the US, for bespoke financial services for traditionally sort of underserved um, communities. I guess Ruth, Natasha, is that something that you guys have seen sort of spring up on your radars?
3: Yeah, we're certainly supporting a number of companies focused on that topic.
0: All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave us there. That wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, guys, let's go around the virtual table. Where can people find out more about you? Let's start with you, AJ. Um, you can find me on
4: LinkedIn, AJ Coin, and you can find, actually, I'll give you com to find out a bit more about our push against the big banks in the UK.
0: Awesome. Uh, over to you, Natasha.
2: Yeah, similar to AJ. You can find me on LinkedIn, Natasha Jones.
0: Perfect. What about you, Ruth?
3: You can. Find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Fox News, Fox, F-O-X-E underscore news. Love that. And you can find Anthemus at Anthemus.com.
0: Super. Thank you, Ruth.
1: Uh, Sarah? I just have to say that I've had Ruth on uh, InsureTech Insider, our sister podcast, a few times, and she still has one of the best Twitter handles around. I'm not sure I've heard a better one recently. Um, If you're looking for me on Twitter, you can find me at Sarah Kachansky. Perfect.
0: And as for me, uh, I am also on Twitter at rossgallagher07. And thank you for listening. Uh, If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It really does help us to make the show better. And it also helps others to find it. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or FinTech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.